resuming our Finding Joy in Life Circumstances series from the book of Philippians. And we read this kind of text in block. We will not look at it all today. We're going to kind of continue to unpack this over these next weeks because this is really the, the root issue that we're addressing in the book of Philippians. And you can kind of boil it down to this. You have uh, the Apostle Paul who is enduring uh, a very serious hardship in life, okay? He's wrongfully imprisoned because of his work for the gospel. Uh, he's in jail, really uh, falsely accused. And the, the most powerful element of what we're seeing here today in his life is that he is, he's at this place where he actually has a substantive joy in his life. And what he shows us, his attitude, is that it, it's, it's an evidence, you might even say, is that we as God's people can have joy in the most challenging of life's circumstances. So you've got this litany of places where he is talking about almost having a celebratory spirit. He's rejoicing. He has confidence in who Jesus is in his life. And he's got this, this enduring spirit and a positive, not just a positive attitude, but I would say a positive Christ-like attitude. And because of this, this, this is the subject of what our conversation has been over these last weeks. It is kind of the springboard that moves us through the rest of the book of Philippians. That's why we've entitled this series, Finding Joy in Life Circumstances, because all that we read after this is this outflow of Paul being in a very difficult circumstance, but still celebrating life. And so, don't want to waste any time today. I want to jump right into the, to the first truth that this passage shows us. And I want to give you a bit of a caveat behind this. What we're about to talk about, I don't know how else to say it, so I'll just say it. It, it is a hard reality of life, but some hard realities are also true realities. And if we're going to be totally honest, the hard reality we're going to talk about right now is that life can and will be hard at times. There's no way to get around that. I mean, if you've been on this earth, and this earth enough, you know that hardship, trial, and sh- suffering, we don't necessarily go through them every day, but we go through them. Life can be challenging and difficult on a myriad of levels. And this is what Paul is talking about in Philippians 1, 12 through 14. So I want to read this again to you, just this section. He says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, he's talking about his imprisonment, has actually served to advance the gospel. And as a result, come clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. So what he's saying here is the people, we are observing his life today and our hearts to Jesus. He's saying in this prison cell, nature of his circumstance and the way he was handling this as he was writing to the Philippians, the church that he deeply loves and started, other people are getting, they're, they're getting bold. They're basically saying, this guy is following Jesus in a very difficult circumstance. No matter how bad it is, God is using him. And they start to own that and they start to preach the gospel without fear. They start to own their faith. It's amazing. Now, in sharp contrast to this is the first idea that I want to talk about with you today. Some Christians, we're reading this with Paul, right? But some Christians believe that once you have received the love of Christ, all of your problems go away. This is a real challenge for us. It's, it's a, I think, a very natural heart emotion. But the bottom line is there's a, a false dichotomy at times where people believe that once you come to Jesus, your, your problems go away. Now, a passage like this shows us that this is not true at all. And the way that you can tell if, if, if you believe this 
or observing the people that you care about if they believe this. I'm not saying anything negative about these statements. I'm just saying that these are sort of heart tells for us regarding how we view trial and circumstance is when people begin to say things like this. Something happens, I don't know what it is, but something that is a legitimate trial in your life. And you begin to say, man, um, how could God let this happen to me? Or maybe even more pointedly, why would God do this to me, right? Those are some of the things that we say sometimes when things get difficult. And I want to say that embedded in those statements, often, not always, but often, is a great deal of negative assumption about the character and nature of God. They imply that there is something kind of wrong about God, or, or maybe even evil about God, or maybe something that's somewhat problematic about who he is. And we're going to talk about this a little more next week, kind of the the problem of suffering, the problem of trial, the problem of evil. We'll get into that a little bit more next week. But today I want to look at the hard attitude of this. I, I want to say that this is something that you should know God allows you and even I would say wants you to ask of him. These are actually legitimate questions because as humans, I've said this before, we, we don't enjoy the gray seasons of life. When there is mystery, we want clarity. Where there is darkness, there is light. Where there is a trial or an issue, we want reasons. That's how most of us are wired. So these kinds of questions at their root are actually, they're not bad questions. And I would say that God is a good God. And when it comes to trial and hardship, he wants you to seek him in these things. You are, it's okay to ask these questions. But I want you to know that as you do, you have to be very careful because if they are left unchecked or if you let your flesh or your attitude or your emotions overwhelm them, overwhelm you, what can actually happen is you can sort of begin to accuse God of, of wrongdoing. And we begin to misunderstand the goodness and the nature and the character of who our God is because we're starting to misunderstand his role in these things. If you don't approach God properly or at least sort this question out properly, you'll likely develop a faith crisis because you will start. It's guaranteed you're going to start to see God as cruel and unjust. And if you have an unhealthy expectation of what you think God should be doing in your life, right, that is actually incongruent with what he says he's going to do in your life, this is the great problem of faith. Most of our crises begin at this point. We think God is this, right, maybe because we don't know him well or we're not in tune to a certain idea about him. Maybe we're not in the word as much as we should be. Maybe we're not connected to community as much as we should be. We have these accountability mechanisms that help us to understand who God is. But what happens is is when, when we start to develop incongruencies, God is but I think God is, we wind up having a faith crisis because this is one of the major roots of most faith crises. Is it crises. It's, it's an expectation issue. And just like your human relationships, when a, when a relationship is built on unrealistic expectations, it is, it is bound to fail. Husband and wife, brother and sister, mother and father, children to parents, when you demand or expect things of somebody and it is not right or even realistic, you're going to start to penalize them for their failures. And sometimes their failures might not actually be failures. And i give you a good example of this. I have two stories I'm going to share with you today. Um, one I shared in the, the first year of restoration uh, where this was the first time uh, this truth kind of became, it came around full circle to me. I was a Christian about 18 months and I went on, or was on the process of going on my first overseas uh, mission trip. I went to uh, the northern part of Brazil. Very new Christian. These ideas were new to me. Pretty radical conversion. And I have to say, although I had been on planes quite a bit at that point in my life, I had never been on a plane where I was kind of, you know, crossing major bodies of water. So I was slightly nervous. And uh, the night before I left, a group of Christians, one in particular who had helped me find Jesus, they said, listen, we want to pray for your safety and the work that you're going to be doing in Brazil. And so I was excited about that. I thought, okay, uh, I've been told by my pastor's prayer is good. Uh, I'm a little nervous. So I accepted their offer. So 
went to this person's house, and they prayed uh, over me and with me for about 20 minutes or so. And when they had stopped, uh, this is the funny part to me. This, this one girl in the group looked at me, and she said, so, you know, how do you feel? Uh, and it was, it was clear um, that we were going to be at different points in what was going on at that moment. So I said to her, listen, um, I've always been, if you know me, kind of a fan of directness and honesty. And while I wasn't mean or rude, she said, how do you feel? And I said, well, not much better, like being honest. Um, I, I, maybe I was supposed to be like superhero in the story, but the truth is I'm still pretty nervous. Uh, and I'm about to be in a plane for 14 hours and I'm going to a country I've never been to. And, and I'm worried that the plane like might crash or something, or maybe I'll be adopted. Who knows? And so she was clearly taken back by the brutal honesty because I really think she thought that she was just going to pray for me. And then I was, you know, like the light switch, like everything was going to be good and, and there were no problems. And although I had every intention of getting on that plane, I mean, I was nervous, but not nervous to the point where I was going to not proceed. Um, she could tell this. And so in a further attempt, she tried to comfort me. And she said, listen, you don't have anything to worry about. She said, because you're a Christian. And God would never let anything bad happen to you because you're a Christian. And then she even, like, she proved her case even further. She was like, especially when you're going on a mission trip. And I heard this, and I was like, yeah, this is great. Like, I was pretty stoked and encouraged. And I thought, you know, this makes perfect sense. I am following God. I'm doing his work. What, nothing bad can happen to me. I'm going to be invincible. In fact, like, honestly, I don't even think I need the plane to get there. I'll just fly down there like, like Superman, you know. And then when I get there, I'll be doing the work of the gospel, and I'll be saving, like, women and children from burning cars with my left hand while leading people to Christ with my right. And I'm, I'm going to be amazing. There is no problems here, right? That's what she said. That's the way I was interpreting this. And then um, I got this kind of sense in my head, and I looked over. My friend, who had led me to Jesus, was kind of shaking his head left to right in a very nuanced way, but he was letting me know that was not the reality of this. And so we had a long talk afterwards, he and I, about this. And <clears throat> what he told me that night was, was contrary to this. He said, you know, sometimes uh, bad things, using the old kind of terminology, there are times when bad things can happen to good people. Or when good godly people, you look at the story of the martyrs or even some of the people in scripture where people were really faithfully serving God and then something very challenging or bad happened to them. Uh, And I think it's in seasons like that that we are really challenged because sometimes it almost feels like God is scuttling his own mission, you know. I'm not saying that's the reality. I'm saying this is what human emotion does. And so he was right in telling me that there's no guarantee here, but there's also no guarantee that something challenging or bad might not happen to you. And, And over the years, as I grew closer to Jesus... I really kind of learned the firsthand truth of this reality. Just being honest, it's been the subject of many a conversation between God and I. It's okay to bring this up with him. The truth is, when, when stuff like this happens, we should seek him and ask why. Try to understand. But the bottom line in this idea is that it is very normal. Um, I'm not saying it happens a ton, but I'm saying it is normal for people who love God and are doing really good things for him to suffer and endure trial. And so if you approach God by saying, like, I love you and I'm serving you and I'm faithful, but why, why is my life difficult? It's an expectation issue. At that point already, you're guaranteed to start wanting to walk away from God because you're not understanding. First of all, there's an assumption and blame there. But secondly, there's also a, 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 mis- a misunderstanding about his character. And I'm telling you, if you don't trust the character of God, you're not going to want to follow him. Now, if we don't understand how God can and will use these things for good in our lives and for good of his, his purposes, the bottom line is we are likely to grow hard and callous towards him when the trials come. You don't seek him. You actually just get angry at him. I want to give you a couple examples of how God uses suffering in the lives of people to help them uh, grow in Jesus more deeply. And I'm going to give you some scriptural examples, okay? Very briefly. <coughs> So we have John the Baptist, right? <clears throat> Some of you have read the Gospels. And if you know anything about John, you know that he is one of the most committed followers of God. 
So much so that God chooses him to be the prophetic forerunner for Jesus. Like, he is paving the way for the king to come. And here's the irony in this. It isn't because John ran away from God or John disobeyed God or, you know, John did something silly to offend Jesus. It's not any, any of that. The reason he loses his life, he suffers a pretty horrific death, right? He's killed by a king, beheaded, is because he's faithful to God. This is, this is one of those mind benders, like doing all the right things, but something kind of wrong happens to him. Yet we know that he holds a special place in Jesus' heart and now the whole Christian faith. We talk about him today because of the way that God worked in his life. So we have to affirm as people when things get difficult. In this case, his suffering was terrible. It was evil what happened to him. But ultimately, in the end of this, God, God has the ability to take this stuff and use it for good. And the simple good that happens here, a simple but profound good, is that this guy's fidelity to Jesus, which causes him his life, it ushers in the era of Jesus. He pays the way, and we talk about the risen Savior today in large part because of God, uh, John's faithfulness to God in that story. Let me give you another example. Think about the Samaritan woman at the well, right? Let's get away from, from the divine, you know, the people pursuing God. Here's a woman at this season in her life that doesn't even care about who Jesus is. Here's a woman who is outside of the kingdom but is suffering greatly, right? Suffering knows no boundary. Harshly judged by her culture for two main reasons. Her ethnicity... She's a Samaritan, which essentially means in the first century world, she's viewed as a half-breed. She is a, an impure Jewish person. That's how they viewed her. And because of that, she was already deemed a societal outcast. But she also was involved with a multitude of men. And because of the fact that she lacked, by first century standards, she lacked the proper ethnicity and the proper morality, she was deemed a societal outcast and treated like one. Now, I don't know if you've ever been marginalized, but this is a trial. That is a hardship. Here's a person built by God to be in relationship with people, who is being abused by people, taking advantage of her in relationships, and consequently, she has no real place to lay her head and call home. She, hasn't, she doesn't fit anywhere. And it is these hardships, right? It's not the top of the mountain. It's the hardship that Jesus uses to shepherd her heart to his perfect acceptance and love. And for a very good reason here, because I want you to think about some of the ways we talk about Jesus. In the same way, he is a societal outcast. He, too, is judged harshly by culture. He has no real place, right? We know the Son of Man has no place to lay his head and call home. He was rejected by everything around him. These are not the greatest of situations. Yet Jesus' empathy in this, the fact that he's gone through it, that he's led the way here, we talked about this last week, he, he's able to take these things and he uses the sharp pain of hardship for the good of God's kingdom and this woman's life. He helps her to find the peace she's looking for when he says, I know you're an outcast, but I want to tell you about my father who loves you no matter who you are. Hardship leads to goodness. Look at the Apostle Paul in our text today. Here's a guy truly suffering in a jail cell, falsely accused, thrown into prison, awaiting execution. We know he lives, but he doesn't know this at this point. And, you know, we hear this word physically in chains. He's used this a couple of times. I'm in chains. We tend to think like, okay, he's cuffed. But, but that's actually not what is happening here. The nature of who he was as a prisoner and the prison he was in and this, these ideas of military, the Praetorian Guard, we read about this. The, the idea of being in chains here means that he wasn't just in chains. He was actually cuffed to a soldier. So think about this. You have no dignity, no privacy, no nothing. You are hooked to another human being whose sole job is to make sure that you don't escape or do anything you know, wrong. His, his condition physically is not a positive one. And his spiritual condition is no better. Let's jump the track and move away from the physical nature of where he's at. 
Think about this. The expansion of Christianity largely happens in the New Testament because of the work of Paul. Jesus is working in him, spreading the gospel, starting churches, much like ours. And so not only is he physically unchanged, but spiritually, his, it had to feel this way. His life's purpose is now kind of plugged up. This is a guy meant to start churches, help people to find Jesus. And he's locked in a prison cell. And this thought had to run through his mind. His, his life, you know, when the hardships come, oftentimes it looks like our progress is on, is on hold. And all I'm trying to say here is that in every way, this is a denied human being. He has nothing right now. But he literally speaks as a guy who has everything. And this is the thing we're talking about. How do you get to this place? How do you get to a place where you literally can look around and say, I have nothing, but actually I have everything? Here's how. All of these examples show us that we have got to learn to see, I would even say discipline our hearts to understand hardship from God's vantage point, not ours. Because the way you look at these things is going to lead you down two very different paths. If you see hardship or suffering, if you, you know, in a derogatory way, blame God or question its purposes, and you, you get to this place where you feel like God is just unjust and cruel, what happens is that path leads to confusion uh, and to despair. It leads to, uh, to a, a very negative understanding of God and life. Well, on the other hand, what we're seeing with Paul, what we've seen with the Samaritan woman, what we see with John the Baptist, is that when you can wrestle with the questions, I'm not denying the humanity of suffering. You've got to deal with this stuff. But when you can deal with this stuff, ultimately trying to sense the purposes of God in this, how we can redeem the worst of situations for his good, things change. You start to embrace this, this attitude of humble confidence. You start to embrace stability in your life. Because it allows you to see the good that God is always bringing about in the midst of your circumstances. And in Paul's case, God manages to take an event rooted in pure evil. There's nothing right about this. And he uses it in a powerful way. He's encouraging Paul. And because of that, other people are encouraged. There are people in the Philippian church and other believers who are emboldened by this. And it encourages us today, right? So the the encouragement knows no boundary. It's spoken to a people in the ancient text. But the application is for a modern people in the same way. It helps people, think about this, it also helps the people who have imprisoned him to see who Jesus is. People are coming to Christ because of Paul's suffering. So simply put, the gospel advances in ways that it never could have in this situation because of Paul's trial. God steps into this, reaches his hand into it, and he starts to redeem it for for the good purposes of his kingdom and for a, a person he loves, the Apostle Paul. Paul sees that there is meaning and purpose in this. This is one of the great realities of suffering is that it's kind of hard to find purpose and value in it if there isn't a benevolent God who holds our hands and and our fate in the middle of them. Next week's talk. He sees purpose and meaning in what he's going through and it starts to sustain him in a life of significant trial. That is what Paul is wanting us to know. Cling to God and things take on purpose. Things have meaning. Things have value when they often look like they have none of any of that. And so while God certainly can allow... I'll use that word, and I will also say there are times when he even does bring about trial. That's just the reality of it. Uh, God can bring about causes. Sometimes God can allow them. I, as the older I'm getting, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to question the motive of God less and not focus on origins or roots. I'm trying to focus on the goodness of God in the situations because we make a grave mistake to say, right, that he always does if we just default blame him right, for, for situations, or that when he does, because that happens, that we, we uh, prescribe some kind of malicious intent to God, at that point we're going to start having a challenge. We, we, we come to the faith crises. And it's okay to work through that, but at the end of the day, if you see God as cruel and unjust, you will not love him anymore. He will still love you, but you will not love him. 
Rather, these instances teach us that, that God in his grace always redeems and uses the hardships of life to, to reveal his goodness and his glory to people. There is always purpose in them. He can redeem the worst for the best. And almost always in ways that we would have never known without them. That is one of the, the true beauties, if you will. It's a, it's a clouded beauty, but nonetheless it's a beauty. Is that often it is in the middle of the trial and the hardship that we experience the goodness and the grace of God that we never would have outside of them. God uses these things for good. And in each of those instances, the three we've talked about, suffering and trial was the catalyst for deepening a person's love and affection for Christ. That's what's happening here. The, the trial is the catalyst for deepening love. Their, their lives remind us that suffering and trial are part of life, that they have a purpose in God's kingdom, and if we'll learn to see them through God's eyes, he'll use those hardships to lead us to goodness and grace. He'll use them to lead us to a deeper love for Jesus. He'll drown us in his goodness and grace if we'll start to see them this way. And this is what Paul is talking about in verse 12. He has come to uh, a spiritual epiphany. He is recognizing that, that this thing is happening and it is causing him to be closer to God. He's learning to look at the trial in a different way. Suffering and trial are the catalyst for growth in Jesus. It's like he's saying what looks like a really bad situation from the outside has turned into an unprecedented opportunity to spread the gospel. It's like he's saying, look, what has happened to me, um, it's going to turn out for my deliverance. And we'll talk about that next week because deliverance doesn't mean that he thinks he's going to live. He then goes into this long diatribe where he's like, it's better for me to kind of live because I know that I can still work for Christ on earth, but I also would like to be with Jesus. So, so he's not saying like, he's not got that airplane story. Like I'm invincible and I'm going to get out of here and it's all going to be good. He has recognized whatever his fate is, God's purposes will prevail in them. I know things are rough right now, but I can see the forest from the trees. And what I am going through, listen to this, because this matters for us. What I am going through will have a historical and personal good in the world. You might not even see it today, maybe not even ever. The martyrs don't know of their impact on earth, but there was both a personal and a historical good that God brought about through some of the most heinous of circumstances. And that is the hope embedded in the belief of the doctrine of suffering. Suffering is real. We can't get away from it. But there is great hope in it, purpose in it, if we begin to understand the way that God works his causes out through them. And this leads me to the second truth I want to share with you this morning. We have to be uh, a little bit pessimistic. We we have to understand the hard edge of this to understand grace, right? So life can be hard. I'd be lying to you if I told you that it was not. Some of you don't even need any convincing on this. But even though life can be hard, if you're paying attention, you'll always see the goodness of God in your situation. That's the key. What are you looking at? How are you looking at things? In Philippians 1.21, which we will start talking about today and will continue to over the weeks that follow, is the root idea. This is, this is where Paul affirms this for us. In Philippians 1.21, he says, Listen, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the beginning of him interpreting the word deliverance in a different way that some of us might. Now, seeing the good in your hardship is entirely dependent on what you have made the bottom line in your life. That's what we're going to talk about closing this morning. This is what Paul's referencing in verse 21. It's a declaration, right, that what he sees as the reason for his existence, this is what he means by the bottom line. The foundation of his life is his bottom line. We use this in business, you know, terminology. The bottom line means it all boils down uh, to this. And although we've talked about this bottom line uh, with different vernacular, we talk about the root of our hearts and uh, understanding idol worship, all these things are kind of talking about this idea. I want to specifically run with this idea. 
Uh, it was something I came across in my studies this week from a, a pastor in New York City called Tim Keller. And I want to give him the credit for the term, but I also want to unpack what, what is being said here, okay? So to understanding, determining, knowing what your bottom line in life is, it really does begin to determine how you interpret suffering and hardship in your life. Knowing what your foundation is built on literally will determine your outcome of what is built on that foundation. And so what Paul is saying in verse 21 is that for him to live, the thing that makes life, life worth living is Jesus. Jesus is the most important thing to him. That does not mean he does not have other priorities in life. It does not mean that other things are not important to him. But everything in life is built on his primary love for Jesus. He's saying, so long as I have him, no matter what my circumstance is, I am truly living life. And that's why while in prison, he's able to rejoice. The prison circumstance doesn't define the heart. Jesus' joy in your heart begins to, to manhandle the circumstance. That's what's happening here. And even though at that moment, it clearly feels like the world has forsaken him, his confidence is in the fact that Jesus has not. That is the hope in that passage, in that teaching. But there's also a great challenge with a passage like this. It is, think about this, it is so logically, I use these words in tandem, logically and theologically obvious why Paul is where he is at right now. It makes perfect sense that when somebody volitionally declares that they want to love and follow Jesus, when we pursue him as Lord, that part of the declaration is the commitment to spend the rest of our days learning to love him more deeply, to believe in the truths of his promises. Above all else, we are starting, or at least we should be attempting, to make Jesus our bottom line. He becomes the reason for our existence. That's what it means to pursue him, to follow him. That's why scripture is clear, like, Jesus doesn't necessarily make you do this. You, you, you basically say, yes, Jesus, yes, I'm, I'm going to try to know you. I want to follow you. There is a heart recognition of, of our, recog- uh, we're recognizing his lordship. And this makes perfect sense, logically and theologically. However, it also reveals a hard reality for some of us in Jesus, who when trials come, if we don't see joy, or at least get to that place, if when the trials come, they wreck us, it likely reveals that we are living as if something else is the bottom line in our lives. So when the train of trial comes and it ruins you, like there is no hope, there is no joy, you don't even ever get to that place, it's going to start surfacing a deficiency in the bottom line. And this is where logic and good theology go out the window. There's the way it should be in Jesus and the way it looks in our lives. This is where we begin to surface the unhealthy root of the joy problem we can all suffer from at times. Like we said last week in that opening analogy, it goes back to what we have rooted our lives in. The, the tether of our hearts to Jesus, what we, what we tether to, is going to dictate what grows. And so if you are a Christian who has illogically chosen to make something besides Jesus the reason you live. You have professed that you love him, but you live for things other than him primarily. You put them over him. If you have a bottom line other than Jesus, if you're a Christian who has modified verse 121 and you say, for me to live is something that is not Jesus, something other than Jesus, yet you try to walk with him, then you're going to have a problem. Because when the trials of life come, for those other things. And sometimes this is the place where God actually sends the trial. He hunts that thing that we put before him because that thing ultimately will wreck us, right? Even the most noble things will wreck us. They become idols. They become things that pull us away from God. When the trials of life come for that other thing, you will be overwhelmed like them because unlike Jesus, they cannot sustain you. There is no permanency in them. And I'll give you some examples of this, some, some examples of alternative bottom lines. So if you're the person who says, for me to live is to have personal fun and pleasure. If you think the bottom line in life 
is leisure and comfort. If you think the bottom line in life is saying, uh, and maybe by leisure and comfort, like you might even be a super hard worker, right? You just live to be happy. You live to have comfort and to provide yourself with the greatest things in life, whether they're material or recreational or emotional. You might, you might even bust your butt at work every day, but you do it to ensure your personal peace and comfort. If you say, look, I, I, I'm living to make sure that life is just good to me. What happens here is when life deals you a set of cards that threaten that, when something takes away your comfort or your pleasure, you will run for the hills and lose your meaning of life. Because when the comfort goes, so does the meaning of your life. You don't have anything to stand on at that point. And sometimes the comfort's robbed by noble things. When your job requires more of you, you're having to work more so your comfort level is less. Or when we move into that great relationship, the sacrificial relationship called marriage, and we start having children, and you start realizing like, oh, life is actually not just about me. Like with kids aptly kind of talked about today, like their existence for a certain set of years is based on you understanding you have to make some sacrifices for them, right? The comfort is challenged. You guys remember when you had infants, like not sleeping for a year and a half? Any of you remember that? Some of you, your eyes are twitching right now because you're just trying to block that war memory out of your, your head, right? Or you recognize that, that God wants you to be a person who doesn't only look out for your own interests. Let's just say you don't even have the physical issue, but, but you're following Jesus and you're saying like, holy moly, like the whole Christian faith. Like the beautiful resurrection we will celebrate comes after the nails go through the hands, right? Sacrificially, you are to not just look for the needs of yourself. There is a time for that. But even in Philippians, Paul tells us one of the great marks of the Christian faith is that we begin to value the needs of others. When that happens, when Jesus says, I need you to be less about you and more about me, what happens is your life hits a brick wall. Because your bottom line is under attack. You walk away from the faith, you disavow Jesus, or maybe you walk the road of the nominal Christian and you figure out a way to make these two things coexist. You can pursue him with apathy. Because there is no personal pleasure anymore. There is no longer life. When the challenge comes, you collapse alongside with it. Or maybe for you the bottom line is to be in control. I often talk about this when we talk about the driven types here. Or maybe, maybe you're not even a driven person, but order is what brings you peace. And you finish this verse by saying, for me to live is to be in control of my circumstances. You're the person who thrives in your life when everything is in order, right? Think about this. Your, your job is stable. Uh, the family is stable. You're ahead on the house payment or your car note, whatever. You eat dinner every day at 6 p.m. in your house. And more important than that, you have planned three to six months of meals out. You know exactly what's going on. You have a, a, a chart and a list for everything, right? You know, when your coffee is brewed, I'm kind of talking about me right now. Everything is systemic and in order. And you see the life through a grid and you just pack everything into the grid. And then all is well with the world and life is good. And then you realize the grid is bending and flexing. And while we want order in life, life is always too messy for that stuff to always and perfectly remain in order. And so on the contrary, what happens is the job gets a little less stable. Maybe you're in sales, right? And for two quarters in a row, you miss your quota. And your boss uses that word PIP. You're on a personal improvement plan. If you don't deliver quota three, you're toast, right? Or the perfect paper list of what you have planned for all your meals over the next three months, right? It's anything but, per- uh, but perfect because your kids get sick or you have an unexpected work trip you have to take or a season in life where there is difficulty in your marriage and all the order starts to melt away or your perfect kids start acting out and it's just a chore to get them to the dinner table, let alone to oblige your meal plan. Or you've had some household repairs that have to be made and you no longer are ahead on your mortgage. You're trying to figure out how to make the ends meet next month. When the trials of life come, 
when control is lost, and the great illusion of control is that we have any at all, right? Your life falls apart. Because if your bottom line is control, when there is no control, there is no life. And when control wrecks your life, you, when, when it comes and it asks for its penance, you fall down alongside with it. Or maybe, this is the last one I'll talk about, maybe for you the bottom line is your children. And this is probably good to hear for those of you who are dedicating kids today. Um, I have three, and parenting is an imperfect science. You just, I pray, I used to pray for God to do amazing things in the lives of my kids. I do that a lot now. But I also pray, like, please, God, don't let me screw this up. I pray that a lot, too, because it's such a significant weight. But there are some places where we can run afoul with raising children. And I find this idea of making the bottom line your children an ever-growing bottom line in our culture today. For you, the verse reads like this. For me to live, living means I'm living for my children. And this is, it sounds kind of noble to a certain degree, but here's what the challenge is. If you believe being a parent, a mom or a dad is your bottom line in life, then what happens is this is noble because we are called to live sacrificially for them. We just talked about this. What happens, though, is you, you start to make your children the greatest priority in life. And while this is noble on one front, it is also incredibly dangerous on the other. Because what tends to happen is much like these other things we talk about, you, you actually begin to worship them. You begin to find your st- stability, peace, hope, and joy in, that issue, in, that, in the child or the children. And you might, you might start embracing some negative attitudes with them. So uh, one of the realities of people who make kids their bottom line is they start to live vicariously through them. You realize all the things you've messed up as a younger man or woman, and you start putting these pressures on your children, uh, these expectations, or them not making those same mistakes, right? You say things like, here's the way we say this, I want to give you the life I've never had growing up, right? And what if your kid says, well, I don't want that life, right? Or you start bending over backwards for them, right? Sacrifice is one thing. But this idea of bending over backwards has, le- has led to a sociological reality today called enablement, right? We get to this place where we're actually thinking we're serving our kids. We start disadvantaging them because we're actually living unhealthily for them. And so you start to get super busy with them because your bottom line now is them and life consumes, your, your life is consumed by kids. And here's the problem with your kids being the bottom line. Here's the hard reality of this. Um, the, the worst case scenario is what if they don't live up to your expectations, right? Or what if you break them in the process of forcing them to live under that pressure? Or the best case scenario is everything turns out the way you want. Whatever you're molding at the end of that assembly line called child rearing is that kid and they look exactly like you want. You've succeeded. The great tragedy in this is that if your child is your bottom line, then they leave the house, right? Unless you're one of those parents who wants people living in your basement or the Florida equivalent of that, Right? The bottom line is the, the, the purpose of healthy parenting is raise them to release them. You want them to love you and care, to care for you, but, but you don't want it to be to the place where you can't let them go to start living their own lives and making their own way in the world. Because if your child is your bottom line, you'll, you'll, you'll create what we call in sociological circles and an enmeshment culture. You'll, 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 not, you'll try to raise and retain. You will not let them grow. And if they leave, what happens is your bottom line goes with them. Thus, the empty nesting syndrome. That's the plan, right? We're supposed to raise and release them, especially so if we're raising kids in Christ. However, if being a parent is your bottom line, I'm not talking about negligence here, but I'm saying your kids now are what you live for, then what happens is, is when they leave, you will be physically, spiritually, and emotionally wrecked because the bottom line goes with the kids. No kids, no life. This is the second story I want to share with you, and I shared this story with you three years ago at Easter. Because it's the best story I have, and one of our values at Restoration is authenticity and community, which means transparency and relationship. And so I want you never to feel like I talk to you guys about these things on Sundays, having mastered them. 
I want you to know that I'm in the same place you are, and I really feel like when I write my talks, uh, the, the first person I'm trying to have listen to this is me, because these truths are valuable to me also, because I'm a person just like you. And so I learned this truth, a beautiful but painful bottom line. I have two bottom lines. One is my children. Um, I, I love them. I have that old school, like Italian fathering mentality. Um, I, I drift between Christian parenting and treating others like the mafia when they are hurt. That's kind of the way the two paradigms I walk through, like neck breaking and bone cracking, which is not a gospel paradigm. I just want you to know that. <clears throat> and, and control. These are definitely, I'm a driven person. So these are my things. So God, uh, I'm not saying he, he made it happen, but my bottom line was challenged this very month, five years ago. And I shared this with you at Easter three years ago about how my wife and I, while sitting in a hotel room in China, picking up my adopted daughter, again, doing like what I thought were really good things for God, I learned at that moment that my five-year-old son was rushed to a hospital in Orlando on Palma uh, by, by ambulance because he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which if you know anything about that, it's a, a very serious and high-maintenance disease. And, and I remember getting that news. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this part of the story and throw it back into the first part of my talk. I got this news, and I remembered you know, trying to talk to him in a hospital bed. I was Skyping with him from China, uh, a terrible Skype connection. And I remember not being able to talk. I actually started crying uncontrollably, which I, I've joked in here about this, but it is actually kind of true. Um, crying is, uh, there's nothing wrong with it. I don't have anything against it. I just don't know that most Orzo men were given tear ducts, so we don't really, we don't do it a lot. It is, a, it is a very unnatural emotion for me, and I really can count on one hand with some fingers left over the times that I have truly, like, done that. And this was one. I, I kind of, this was a great indication to me that the bottom line got wrecked. I kind of lost control of my emotional faculties, and I didn't know it then, but the bottom line was being challenged. I, I didn't recognize the goodness of God in that. I couldn't see it or feel it. I was in that, like, life is just hard sometimes season, and I remembered asking the questions, like, how do you deal with this? Like, what do you do about this? I mean, it's one thing for me to suffer, right? Think about that. If you have children, it's one thing for you to suffer. You can suck that stuff up, but it's another thing to watch your kids suffer. It's an entirely different hardship, especially when you can't do anything about it. And so I felt completely helpless in a situation, not a position I prefer to be in. I remember thinking, like, I cannot fix this. I cannot think my way through this. I cannot read a book on this. I can't build a team of people to deal with this. I, was, I wasn't even in the same country. I mean, you want to talk about not being able to do anything. I, I couldn't do anything. I had a fixed flight, and I was stuck over there. And at the time when I felt like I was needed most, I started feeling uh, like life was just incredibly hopeless. And it felt that, that way for a long time. Many of you were very instrumental in helping us getting back on that, the, the road to hope and joy and your love and care for us. And so over those next days and months, I was faced with some serious choices, some real questions, hard questions and raw emotion. I was confused, afraid, and I've been very honest about this. And then I just got angry. That's where I go, right, when the spirituality gets numb. I remember thinking, like, how could God do this? How could this have happened? Think about this, right? <clears throat> what I said earlier, here I am, a pastor, trying to follow him, caring about adoption, overseas, doing, I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to be doing, and then this happens. I like, could it not have even waited till, till I got home. I was in the, like, you got to be kidding me mode. And I, I could not see, nor was I even thinking about how anything good could come out of this. And over these next months, I remember thinking, you know, here's God. Ask me the questions. I'm a big boy. I'll deal with this. I'm challenging him, and I'm questioning him. And over time, I start to come to my senses because of his goodness. And I start realizing, like, I can let anger and doubt rule me. I can do that. That's an option. Or I can start trying to get back to the place where I believe the very same thing I'm talking to you about today. And so I started asking God in a very, very real state of anger to remind me that there is hope and purpose in this, even though I couldn't feel it. This is the great promise of Jesus. When you don't have hope, you don't actually have to have any. You just have to press into Christ. 
where the Holy Spirit promises to, he, he promises to bridge the gap. This is what grace is. He promises to bring about in you what you can't bring about in you. And so in his grace and over time, God is gently reminding me, it is okay for circumstances to cause us to question him. It is okay. There is a place for that in our walk with him and with each other. It is okay to have those seasons in life. We just have to know that even though we feel like all have abandoned us, and maybe they have, your father in heaven never will. He promises to walk with you through that season. And so this comes full circle for me. It was not three months later. It was almost four full years later that the light bulb switched. I had the cognitive truth, the the honey, what we talked about. I I knew the taste of the honey, but I didn't taste the honey until four years ago, which was late last year, where a very close couple friend of ours had a child who was also diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. They were actually taking care of my son for some time while we were away. And because of our friendship, we immediately dropped everything and went to spend the day with them. And that day, for the first time, I saw a glimmer of hope in the mess. I, I watched my son, you know, pushing at that point. He's, he's almost on his way to 10. He's about to be there in a few weeks. But I watched my son, who has been dealing with diabetes for four years now, naturally encourage a diagnosed friend. I watched him. I told my wife this. I watched him pastor somebody. It was amazing. And he did it in a way that, that I could not. He had walked a road, and he had a unique ability to help somebody who else was on it. I'm not saying you can't help somebody if you've not walked the road, but I saw in him hope. And for the first time, I'm just going to be very honest, if I'm being very, very honest, I believed that God meant it for good. I knew it, but that was the day I believed it. Because I started to see with my own eyes, after having dealt with the pain and the suffering, the questions, that, that, and still questioning this mess every step of the way, I don't stop questioning this. I still have my questions. I still pray for healing. But I also saw God begin uh, to redeem a terrible situation for his glory and for the good of others. And in that moment, I had to remind myself, here's the bottom line. My kids are my kids, but ultimately, uh, they are God's kids. And that's the commitment you guys are going to make here in a few minutes. You are the primary caregivers for them. They are your children. But in the end game, ultimately, they belong to God. And remember this, right? Uh, your father in heaven will be with your children and my children long after we're, we're not with him anymore. So there should be a natural level of trusting him more with them as they, as they grow. That's the beauty of this. Ultimately, they are in his care, not mine. And my bottom line was really challenged that season in a very deeply spiritual way. And I have learned, although I still grit my teeth a little bit when I say this, to be thankful for it. It's okay to grit. That's part of reality of being a human. And so you see, when you recite verse 21 and you say, for me to live is Christ, then you have the ability to endure life's trials no matter what they are. And this is the conclusion Paul comes to. He's, he is recognized with his heart. He's going to make it in the jail cell. The worst life can throw at him is death, and death leads to everlasting life with Christ. He had to live by the truth that Jesus was his all. And he shows us here, if you have professed a love for Jesus, if you take, if you take one thing away from what I've said today, let it be this. If you are in Jesus or considering being in Jesus, there can only be one bottom line for you. There is much grace in living this way. But to live with, with an alternative ending to that verse is a Christian contradiction of the highest sorts. For us to live is him, and everything flows out of that. To, to profess our love for him and to live for something else, it is a contradiction of the highest sorts. It is logically and theologically inconsistent. It makes no sense because he doesn't make you do anything. So when you live for something other than Jesus, no matter how noble it might seem, when you live for things that are less secure than Jesus, who is an immovable rock, when those things collapse in your life, and they will, they are all fragile, your life collapse, collapses alongside them. And so as we close this morning, as we move into response time and dedicate children, 
I just want you to ask God what your bottom line is. I want you to ask him if there's something, maybe not, if there's something that you have unhealthily attached yourself to right now. Ask God to show you the fragility in this way of thinking. Ask him to graciously show you um, what your bottom line is. Because when it comes to God's goodness and his grace, when it comes to the way that God wants to work in your life, no matter what you are going through, you you, you have to ask Jesus this. What is my bottom line? Because if you can sort that out, if you can get to the place where you start recognizing it is Jesus, it'll bring you to a place of peace and hope and joy. At least it'll get you on the road. I don't know that those things are always instantaneous. They can be, but they're not always. So ask yourself, when it comes to the bottom line, when it comes to recognizing God's goodness and hardship, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you? And as I say each week, as importantly, what is it that you are going to do about it? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your son. Thank you for, uh, again, another reality of scripture. Uh, It is incredibly uh, spiritual. In some ways, we talk about these things. They are high ideas that come directly from the throne of heaven, yet they are ideas and truths, God, directly meant to connect and marry into the hearts of us. And so I thank you again, God, um, for the humanity of a passage like this, for the fact that it shows us you know who we are and what we deal with. And every step of the way, you give us hope and peace. And so it is our prayer right now, as we have a a season this morning, a bit of time to stop hearing from me and to start directly hearing from you. God, I I pray that the ideas and the thoughts and the truths we have conversed about this morning, use them now, God, to speak directly to the hearts of your people. I pray, Lord, that everyone in this room, uh, their ears and the spiritual ears of their heart, God, would be uh, in tune to what you have to say. Bind the enemy from this place. Whatever we have brought into this place, God, I pray you would remove it and allow us to see and hear from you clearly. Truly, let this be a time right now where we, uh, since we have received so much through the word and worship, we now begin to give back to you and who you are. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.